Hajun Chang is a developmental economist who's been named among the world's top 20 thinkers. He served as a consultant to the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the European Investment Bank, Oxfam, and the great and powerful United Nations. Harjun Chang is the author of many books, the most notable of which are 23 Things That Don't Tell You About Capitalism, Kicking Away the Ladder, Bad Samaritans, The Economics User's Guide, and his highly anticipated new book, Edible Economics. In this podcast, you can expect to hear Harjun respond to questions such as why there is no such thing as a free market, which country has the best economic system, how the washing machine may have changed the world more than the internet, very controversial take there, South Korea, whether organizations like Oxfam and the World Bank are forces for good, and more and more and more and more as well. Now, you all know the drill. This podcast took me more than five hours to put together, but will only take you five seconds to review. So pump that good juice into the algorithm and submit a five-star rating everywhere you listen to this show and tell a mate, tell your mum, tell your mates, mates, tell everyone you see, tell your colleagues about the Curious Worldview podcast. And if you follow me on socials, which is at the moment about five people, you will see that I am now shilling the shorts game. YouTube shorts, TikToks, and Instagram. So get excited for that. Maybe we can uh, generate a bit more of an audience that way. So with no further ado, here is the amazing Ha Jun Chang. The biggest thing that stayed with me from the book, 23 Things That Don't Tell You About Capitalism, is the explanation that you give for why there is actually no such thing as a free market. Yes, uh, that uh, idea, you know, it had uh, developed over probably the, the couple of decades that, uh, since I started uh, my the academic career. I mean, it was that the first uh, the formulated in this article that I published in 2002 in this uh, journal called Cambridge Journal of Economics. But uh, yeah, I mean, that uh, leading up to that point, uh, you know, this was uh, the late 80s, 90s, when I was at the first uh, PhD student and then a junior academic. And at the time, the world was uh, dominated by the most uh, rigid kind of uh, free market economics. And yeah, I mean, you kind of took it for granted that uh, people knew what they were talking about, even if you don't agree with them. But uh, uh, when they were talking about the free market, but I realized uh, actually what is the free market? Because uh, you read uh, the different uh, kind of uh, gurus of uh, free market economics, you know, Friedrich von Hayek, uh, Milton Friedman, they are all slightly different. Yeah? I mean, they, they, their definition of uh, free market is actually not the same. So I got to uh, explore this, think about this, and also the doing uh, work on economic uh, history as a sideline, I realized that uh, the notion of what is a free market has changed enormously over time, you know. So in the 19th century, you know, for not all, but many Americans, the free market included the free market in people, you know, that they were market forced slaves, you know. I mean, that in the 19th century, that Britain and other European countries, free market included labor market with child labor. 
So I got to uh, uh, really uh, uh, think about this and uh, yeah, basically come to realize that what is a free market depends on your ethics, your philosophy, and your idea on the, how the economy works. Yeah? So that, you know, for two, uh, sorry, for the same but, uh, market, one group of people might say this is a free market and others may say it's not. You know, the, take the case of child labor, you know, when the, in the early 19th century, the reformers in Europe were trying to push uh, for regulation of uh, child labor. A lot of uh, the free market economies were outraged because uh, they thought that this was undermining the very foundation of a free market economy, namely the freedom of contract. So their point was, look, these kids want to work, they need to work. These are the factory owners that want to employ them. What is your problem? It's not as if uh, these uh, factory owners uh, kidnap these children and use them as uh, slave labor. It's uh, the, based on the free contract. Yeah? Now, if you take that view, you know, uh, you'd of course uh, say that uh, the trying to intervene in the, the, the labor market uh, by regulating child labor is uh, uh, anti-free market policy. But on the other hand, uh, these days, not even the most uh, ardent uh, supporters of uh, free market do not say that, oh, we need to bring back child labor so that our labor market can be truly free because in the last uh, couple of centuries, even these people have come to accept that, yes, uh, the right of uh, children to have a childhood and education has a priority over freedom of contract. Once you accept that, you don't even that uh, consider it uh, as a the, the regulation, you know. That, but uh, mm. when you think about it, this is a huge uh, the regulation because if you say, I mean, uh, the, it's a the hypothetical the, the, the situation. But if you try to ban the completely child labor in the very poor countries where 40, 50 percent of uh, the people, uh, sorry, children are working, and I'm not talking about, you know, taking care of the family goat and, you know, getting fired, uh, that kind of work. I mean, we are talking about that uh, children actually doing adults work. And in many poor countries that, uh, you know, that, that uh, 40, 50 percent of uh, the children might be uh, working. And in that uh, kind of situation, if you uh, try to ban that uh, child labor, it would be tantamount to, I don't know, the, the U.S. government saying that, that uh, everybody whose uh, social security number ends with an odd number will uh, be prevented uh, from working that, uh, from tomorrow, I mean, there'll be a riot. Yeah? Mm. So it's uh, that kind of huge uh, that, uh, regulation, banning child labor, but uh, these days uh, most people don't even see it as uh, a regulation. Yeah? No one says that, that uh, we don't really have a free market economy because we ban child labor. We uh, have banned uh, slavery. Yeah? So the, all these uh, examples uh, that uh, make you realize that actually the idea of uh, free market itself is a political construct. You know, I would uh, go even further and say that the market itself is a political construct because all markets have uh, some but, uh, political uh, institutions at the foundation of it, which embody certain ethical values. So the, the, this means that uh, there is no kind of scientific, uh, totally objective way of drawing the boundary around the free market. 
And once you begin to accept that, uh, you begin to understand uh, the economy in a uh, very different way because that uh, it means that it, the economy that now needs uh, the public uh, the deliberation. That uh, we need to think about the uh, ethical values. That we need to uh, think about the political institutions before you decide uh, what kind of economy we are going to have. Maybe you could uh, answer the question by giving an example of the U.S. like you do in the book. Basically, people might think that the U.S. is as close as we've got to a sort of free market capitalist uh, sort of utopia, as close to the original philosophy as they'd come. But you realize that, wait a minute, the F as soon as the FDA is involved, that's regulation. That's not free market at play. As soon as you have uh, immigration involved, that's a type of uh, protectionism. That's immigrate. Uh, that's regulation no longer a free market. It's not just simply the, the the equilibrium of demand and supply in every single domain. So could you explain, maybe using the USA as an example, why there is no such thing as a free market? That's right. Yeah, that's a good uh, way of doing it. Yeah. Okay, so uh, these days uh, we uh, are told to aspire to basically copy the US model of capitalism, which uh, uh, comes as closest uh, to the ideal free market uh, economy as uh, possible. And yeah, indeed, uh, many uh, Americans uh, will say, oh, the, you know, the Britain's a socialist country because they have uh, nationalized the health service, you know. Sweden's a socialist country because uh, they have very high income tax and so on. But, you know, the, even the US, I mean, the, just uh, let's uh, look at it a, a bit more closely, you know. So, the, yeah, I mean, the, probably the, if you go back to the 19th century, you didn't have uh, all sorts of uh, regulations on the food standard, you know, drug safety, environmental uh, regulation. Of course, uh, these uh, the regulations uh, are, I mean, the, the were not there the, in the beginning. And maybe that uh, when you think about those things, uh, that the U.S. Uh, may be far more socialist than what it used to be. But uh, by today's standard, it uh, seems to have the smallest amount of uh, regulation, but uh, even then, the, the, you know, the, the, the country has a welfare state that uh, is uh, much smaller than in, say, Sweden, but uh, it uh, the still the takes up 80-90% uh, of uh, GDP. You know, you have all sorts of uh, regulations on the, the drugs and food safety and uh, environment. Okay, the, maybe the lighter than in Sweden, lighter than in the, the Japan, but uh, still uh, lots of regulations. And uh, the U.S. Uh, has uh, over time uh, introduced a lot of uh, regulations uh, regarding uh, labor issues. Uh, so slavery was banned uh, after the Civil War, and then child labor was uh, banned. Yeah? And uh, indeed, uh, I mean, uh, there are the restrictions on the working hours and, uh, you know, the work safety and all sorts of things, which at, uh, when they were first uh, beginning to be introduced, uh, were vehemently opposed by the free market advocates. Yeah? And let's not forget that uh, the U.S. also has a huge uh, the, uh, government influence on how the economy develops, because uh, it may not have the kind of you know, the very interventionist uh, policies that you see in the countries like, I don't know, the Korea or Germany or Finland, but uh, the U.S. government uh, hugely influences uh, the course of uh, its uh, economic development by funding a huge portion of uh, the, the research and development. Yeah? So, the, 
you know, it was even higher during the days of the Cold War because at the time the U.S. government put a lot of the research money into the developing electronics and aircraft and so on. So you know, my friend Mariana Matsukato became famous for writing this paper showing how just about every single piece of technology. <laughs> In the, the iPhone was uh, initially funded uh, by the uh, U.S. government, yeah, the which Pentagon, is which uh, is the most incredible um, counter argument to just supply and demand in a totally unregulated market is going to sort Absolutely, everything yeah. out. Yeah, and uh, go back further in history. In the 19th century, the U.S. was the most uh, protectionist economy in the world. You know. It goes on. So yes, I mean, I'm not saying that that, that this or that regulation is uh, necessarily justified or that uh, mm. should be abolished or whatever. But uh, you have to realize that you don't see these things and think uh, the U.S. is a free market economy only yeah. because that, that uh, you have so totally accepted the political, ethical, and economic premises under these uh, the regulations and interventions that you fail to see it. Yeah, mm. uh, fail to see them. Yeah. And, and the book had made such an impression on me because I did an economics degree, right? And I went mm. through the entire three years and had never heard of Friedrich Hayek. Um, and I'd barely mm. heard of Milton Friedman. And so when I discovered yeah. these guys, I thought, oh, wait, here is the mm. answer. And I became, you know, full free market, hardcore mm -mm. Uh, to, to Austrian to the end. Um, and yeah. the first real counter to that was uh, reading your book, which just added so much more flavor yeah. to it. And as well, Henry Hazlitt's mm -hmm. Economics in One Lesson. Uh, I, I mm -hmm. think just the combination of those two books taught me significantly more about economics and say maybe developmental economics than any degree mm -hmm. maybe could have. Obviously, it's removed from all of the... Um, microeconomics and the theoretical side of economics but just from a, a theor uh, from a practical example uh, it, it had a huge impression on me for that and that chapter stood out yeah. to me probably most significantly um, and yeah. I've been able to bring it up many times in conversations throughout the years just like wait a minute you know you're telling me that you want an unregulated police force because you just think yeah. that the um, the conditions of supply and demand are going to make it such I'm like wait a minute it's too simple of an answer. Um, and anyway, so mm -hmm. to tack onto that, I'd love to hear, given your worldview, which country do you think has the best economic system? Mm. Yeah, no, I'm uh, very uh, flattered uh, to hear that uh, my book uh, uh, provided uh, you with a broader view of economics. But, uh, you know, my position is uh, the, what they call pluralism. Yeah? I believe that uh, all these different schools of economics has uh, the, some things uh, to teach us. So, you know, when people ask me that uh, who are the, say, three most uh, economists, who are the, the three economists who influence you the most, that uh, I would say Karl Marx on the left, but uh, Friedrich Hayek on the right, and Herbert Simon, the father of uh, the behavioral economics uh, in the middle. Yeah? And people uh, freak out that uh, they say, how can you that uh, be influenced both by the Marx and Hayek? You know, Hayek, I think, is a uh, great uh, economist. I mean, his uh, view of the world is uh, actually very much more sophisticated than the standard uh, neoclassical uh, view of the world uh, represented by Milton Friedman. So even though they may 
advocate uh, similar policies. I think uh, Hayek was uh, a much uh, more profound uh, thinker. So, you know, I uh, take all the kind of uh, different schools uh, the seriously. You know, basically the point is that uh, these different schools were developed uh, to explain different things you know, in different contexts. And uh, they uh, therefore made different assumptions about uh, human nature and the uh, nature of the economy. You know, that they also have different uh, political and ethical positions. So one theory that might be perfect uh, for one type of uh, situation might be totally useless uh, for another. You know? One theory that uh, is uh, very good at uh, explaining something might be you know, but, uh, totally incapable of uh, explaining something else. So uh, like that, uh, my view on that, uh, the ideal economic system is uh, very pluralist, you know? in the mm -hmm. sense that uh, you know that, that different countries uh, face uh, different conditions, they wanted different things, you know, and uh, they all developed their uh, different models. You know? So that the most that uh, shocking, uh, the striking example that in that context is uh, Singapore, you know, that because uh, that when you hear about uh, Singapore, the in standard textbooks or the you know the Wall Street Journal, the Economic Magazine, or whatever, you only hear about this uh, free trade policy and its uh, welcoming attitude towards uh, the multinational corporations, which it has. But you know that you are never told that ninety percent of land in Singapore is owned by the government, eighty-five <laughs> percent of uh, the housing is uh, provided by the government house uh, government government housing corporation, and a staggering 22% of GDP is produced by the, what are known as GLCs, government-linked corporations. Yeah, these are corporations in which the government has, well, roughly at least 20% of ownership, sometimes up to 100%. And I often challenge my graduate students, look, if someone told you to design uh, the best uh, economic system according to a particular economic theory, no one that uh, could have uh, invented something like Singapore, you know? because it's a, a mixture of uh, extreme socialism and extreme uh, the, the, uh, free market uh, the economics. You know? So, the, yeah, all systems are like that. I mean, Singapore is a the very the, the extreme example because it uh, had a very the peculiar condition of being a you know, city state, you know, very limited land, you know, the, the, a lot of uh, internal political conflict initially. So they uh, came up with uh, the, these uh, the ways of uh, managing uh, the economy, you know, the, you had the land and housing problems. So basically without the, the, the government uh, controlling it in some fashion, you couldn't have uh, political stability, which was uh, essential for economic development. Yeah? You had that uh, relatively limited uh, entrepreneurial the, the resources, so you had to invite uh, foreign firms to come and uh, teach you things. But on the other hand, you didn't want to uh, completely lose uh, control uh, of your economy to foreign companies. So you set up uh, a lot of uh, state-owned enterprises, you know, the, in shipbuilding, in semiconductors, you know, the, and even the famous uh, Singapore Airlines. Yeah. So all other mm. countries have uh, developed their systems in that kind of way. But, you know, if you that, uh, ask my preference, I think uh, that the Scandinavian countries and other Northern European countries have uh, probably the, 
got the, the a system that I like the most, mm. but that doesn't Why? mean that that is uh, necessarily better or correct. No, because uh, they've been able to uh, develop a system which uh, combines uh, the quite uh, the egalitarian the, the social arrangement and the, the dynamic, uh, innovative uh, economy. So I think uh, they got the combinations right. Yeah? I mean, the, the U.S. might be you know, innovative and dynamic, but you know, the, it's uh, the too kind of, uh, uh, I mean, how can I put it, uh, harsh uh, for people who do not belong to, say, top 20%. Yeah? Mm. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the Bernie Sanders, uh, the, the, some years ago the, the, in his uh, presidential campaign famously said that if you want American dream, go to Scandinavia. Yeah? Because that, that the U.S. might have had a very high social mobility up to, say, the 1950s and 60s, but the system has ossified, and now it uh, has actually very low the social mobility. Yeah? Mm. So actually, that you you the, the have a high social mobility in the countries like uh, uh, Sweden or Finland or the Netherlands. Yeah? So that I mean. And uh, there are many other issues that uh, in which I think uh, the, the Scandinavians and other northern European countries that are doing quite well. But uh, the, you know, the, this uh, combination of uh, economic dynamism and uh, uh, social equity, I think, is uh, that uh, quite a difficult balance uh, to strike. And uh, I think uh, those countries have uh, done that. Yeah? But you know, that at the same time, but there are other countries that, that uh, are good at uh, other things. You know, the South Korea, my native country, has been extremely successful in that, uh, creating uh, an economy that is uh, based on innovation and uh, creativity. On the other hand, it has uh, the, the very poor the, the welfare system, so much so that uh, now the countries that uh, got a serious uh, problem with falling uh, social the, the mobility, you know, the, the, the lowest uh, the, uh, fertility rate in the world, the highest uh, the gender wage gap in the OECD. So, you know, on those things, it uh, the, has uh, done terribly. Huh? So I'm, I'm sure that, that uh, you know, the, you can uh, say similar things about all the countries, including uh, the, the northern European countries, because uh, there are the, obviously the problems uh, in those countries too. But you know, if uh, the, the, you ask the, my preference, I would say the northern Europe. You know? But you know, the other people have different uh, political views and ethical views. Uh, so clearly, um, what are the economic indicators that you're using to measure Scandinavia as your favorite economic system? Oh, the. the the, you know, that on a number of indicators, yeah? so that the first is, uh, the, you know, the economic growth rate, yeah? actually that, uh, you know, people have this uh, the notion that uh, if you have uh, high equality, it uh, means that, uh, that you don't grow fast, yeah? you may have uh, equal society, but that uh, your economy loses dynamism because entrepreneurs uh, don't bother and, uh, you know, but actually, that, that Sweden, Finland, these countries that uh, I mean, uh, in the, the last uh, six, seven decades have uh, grown faster uh, than the United States. Yeah? Do you want to know a, a really? A... Do you know a really interesting statistic that backs up what you just said? Uh, you know, people mm -hmm. might think that because of the extremely high taxes that 
this uh, country is, is, is very um, unattractive to entrepreneurs, but per capita, there are more unicorns in Stockholm than there are in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Right. Uh, no, that's uh, very impressive. No, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is no coincidence, you know, that uh, because that, uh, I mean, the system, of course, that uh, uh, imposes high taxes and so on, but that tax is uh, used uh, to provide social uh, stability, but more importantly for the, 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 the point that we are discussing now, I mean, the, it uh, enables the society to the, utilize all the talents in society. Eh? Because that, uh, in the, the Sweden and other the Northern European countries, it is that, uh, actually very possible that for people who have uh, come from very low background uh, the, to the rise to the top, you know, because of the uh, uh, welfare system, the education system, and uh, the training and retraining programs. So actually, the, the Americans are, the, the, you know, just think about it. I mean, the, they are getting all this uh, the entrepreneurial talent uh, from other countries. Yeah? yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that is because also that, 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 you know, a tremendous... Um, Compliment to the U.S. system that they do attract the best talent in the world, and that yeah, also of course, has to yeah. come back no, no, to their economic. Yeah, uh, it's got some uh, the incredible strengths, uh, but uh, you know, it that uh, uh, its uh, internal system has uh, that, uh, now ossified that uh, it cannot, you know, bring uh, people up uh, from uh, the, the lower the yeah. strata uh, of uh, society. Another indicator that I would uh, look at is that, uh, you know, the, the rate of, uh, sorry, the, the indicators of uh, income distribution, you know. Of course, that uh, in Sweden and Finland, recently, inequality has uh, risen, yeah. But uh, still, that uh, by international standard, is that uh, very, very low. And uh, that uh, makes a more pleasant society, you know, that you... You know, go to New York, London, you know, that, that you see so many the homeless people, you know, that, uh, in the Britain, which is uh, one of the richest that, uh, societies that uh, the world has, uh, the, sorry, the humanity has uh, ever created, that uh, you have millions of people going hungry, you know, the reports of uh, school kids are stealing their mates at uh, lunch, you yeah? know. I mean, that uh, bringing a single slice of moldy bread uh, for lunch and uh, stuff like that. So, you know, I don't want that uh, to kind of uh, live in that kind of society, how much wealth it might uh, create uh, overall. So, yeah, yeah I mean, uh, there are, uh, I mean, your unicorn indicator is also that, that uh, very, very that, that, that important. You know, all these that, that, that indicators are pointing out that, that these countries have but, uh, got it uh, better than uh, most other countries. Yeah? Mm. What about the cultural question here? Um, you know, it's also worth mentioning mm. that Sweden is extremely uh, homogenous. You know, they all sort of practice the same religion. They generally all have the same type of family values. Uh, there is so little friction when it comes to people's worldview and sort of ambition for life within the Swedish society, mm -hmm. which has to be this giant intangible reason why all these other things seem to work, why there is so much trust in the government mm -hmm. to be willing to give 60% of your income, which is my fucking tax rate. Mm -hmm. It's a joke, but I'm here, right? And it's I decided to do it. Yeah, so yeah. 
Um, yeah. What about the cultural question? How does that feed mm-hmm. into your economic yeah. worldview? Yeah, no, those are the, the, I mean, yeah, cultural the, the aspects are broadly defined. I mean, the, the people worldview, the, their relationship with the, each other, the, their view about the community, the trust in the public authority, and all of these, uh, of course, uh, these things uh, matter uh, uh, enormously, but uh, I have been writing uh, quite a lot of stuff on this uh, aspect, uh, arguing that these things are important, but they can be changed, they have been changed. You know, Sweden itself is a very good example, you know, in the 1920s, Sweden actually had the worst industrial relations in the world. Yeah? The country lost the largest number of uh, days, uh, working days in strikes uh, per worker yeah, in the world. Yeah? So it was a very conflictual uh, society. Yeah? I mean, never mind the homogeneity. I mean, you know, the mm. homogeneity uh, can actually uh, make a society more conflictual because uh, people might uh, be far less willing to accept uh, the high inequality in a homogeneous society. Yeah? In the U.S., I mean, you have uh, all kinds of uh, the immigrant uh, groups and so on that are coming from different backgrounds uh, at different times. Uh, so it's uh, the, the less uh, kind of, uh, I mean, the, in that country, that the people are more willing to accept a high degree of uh, inequality because uh, they think, oh, we are different from them. I mean, the, the, the ancestors have been here for a few centuries, we just uh, came uh, uh, you know, in the last uh, uh, 20 years or whatever. But in homogeneous societies, uh, the inequality is harder to accept, I mean, which is actually the case in uh, Korea too, you know, that uh, you see the, all these uh, the dramas uh, the, the, from Netflix uh, coming out of uh, Korea and the movie the Parasite and uh, stuff like that. I mean, the, you see very, very high tension even though, I mean, yeah, Korea is actually quite unequal uh, by the standard of Europe, but, uh, you know, it's uh, that, uh, still uh, one of the more equal societies, but uh, the people just cannot accept it because they are uh, so homogeneous. Yeah? <laughs> so anyway, uh, going back to Sweden, in the 1920s, you had uh, terrible industrial relations, and then the, the country had that uh, big uh, the, the problems with uh, the, the Great Depression, you know, at some point, Unemployment rate was thirty uh, percent, and uh, the conflict uh, grew and grew. But they finally uh, realized that if uh, that they behave like this, uh, that they are all going to uh, go down the drain together. Yeah? So that is uh, when uh, in nineteen thirty-eight, uh, they got the workers and the capitalists uh, got together to sign this Zalzubaden uh, uh, agreement. I don't know whether I got the pronunciation right. Salzburbaden, how about that? Okay, that's a, that's a yeah. rogue reference. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, so the, yeah, in that agreement, uh, basically the, the workers and capitalists uh, came to a basic understanding that they need to work together. Yeah? And it's only mm-hmm. after that that, that, that the capitalists that, uh, became more willing to pay higher taxes uh, to fund the uh, uh, welfare state. The workers became more restraining in terms of uh, the, the industrial actions that uh, the country eventually uh, developed uh, this uh, very cooperative, uh, trustworthy culture. Same story in Japan. I mean, that, that, you know, it's that, uh, another 
society that, that are known for the peaceful industrial relations and uh, the trust in the, each other. But you know, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, Japan lost uh, the more uh, working days uh, to industrial strikes uh, per worker than did, uh, not to speak of uh, Sweden and Germany, but uh, than did uh, Britain and France. You know? mm. It had uh, very bad uh, industrial relations because they had uh, quite a uh, uh, tense uh, situation with a uh, very strong uh, militant uh, communist union and the capitalists are still not uh, quite uh, willing to make uh, concessions. But once again, uh, from the 60s, uh, they realized we, we need to uh, solve this. And uh, the companies uh, started uh, creating, I mean, it was a very different arrangement uh, from Sweden, but uh, the companies that uh, started creating what is known as a lifetime employment for the co-workers, they provided company welfare, you know, the, the workers that started uh, moderating their demand, uh, the communist unions, uh, the popularity fell because of that. and. Yeah, in the end, I mean, uh, it's uh, not as uh, good as uh, the Scandinavian system because it is great uh, in Japan if you belong to the, say, top 50% uh, of the workforce because you have uh, your job guaranteed, you have uh, very good company welfare, but, you know, this uh, the, the kind of part-time workers, you know, uh, workers are working in smaller companies that cannot uh, offer these things. They are not uh, doing very well, yeah? but uh, still, I mean, they were able to solve their problem. Yeah? So once again, that, 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 you know, that the important point of our culture is that yes, uh, it matters, but it can be reconstructed. It has been reconstructed, partly that, uh, through these political efforts, but also that through the very development of the economy, because uh, when our material conditions change, people's attitude change. Yeah? Mm. So one thing that uh, a lot of uh, the, the developing countries uh, the, are finding it difficult is uh, to basically make uh, their workers accept uh, kind of industrial discipline, yeah? keeping time and uh, being there when uh, you are needed and uh, you know, the, the working uh, the in cooperation with other workers, uh, because uh, you know, the, the in agrarian societies, you know, timekeeping is not that important. Yeah? I mean, you are uh, essentially working, except for a few the major tasks, that uh, you are essentially working alone. Yeah, you are not tied to the production line and so on. So, you know, that, that people in agrarian societies have but a very different attitude towards these things. And when they first start working in factories, I mean, they appear lazy and uh, the uncooperative and uh, exceptionally individualistic and so on. And indeed, uh, this was, uh, the, as I uh, cite in a couple of my uh, works, uh, the, this was uh, the uh, conclusion that this uh, Australian engineer uh, who visited uh, Japan in 1915 uh, uh, drew. Yeah? He was invited by the Japanese government to advise on how to improve uh, the productivity in Japanese factories. And he basically said, you know, that these guys are just too uh, relaxed, you know, they don't keep time, they are lazy, you know. And uh, when I asked that, that, that about the manager, Japanese, I can't, I can barely Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that, 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 and uh, when I asked uh, the Japanese managers that, 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 what are you going to do about it, that they said, oh, we cannot change national character. You know? <laughs>
Now fast forward that, that, that uh, 50 years later, I mean, this is uh, 1915, uh, 50 years later, the Japanese came to be known as uh, worker ants, you know. <laughs> so, exactly, yeah. Uh, the, when the society industrializes, you know, uh, more and more people learn this, uh, the capitalist uh, labor mm -hmm. the discipline and timekeeping and, yeah, the, uh, their attitude change. Yeah? So the, while the culture is uh, extremely important, I think uh, the problem with the people who are advocating uh, the, the importance of uh, culture is that they usually think of it as fixed, yeah? national character coming from, you know, if not uh, the, the 2000 years ago, the, at least that uh, uh, for the last uh, few centuries, you know, the, I think uh, the, that that uh, that needs to be uh, mm. corrected. Uh, the, the question of culture is extremely fascinating to me, and I'm sure you'll get a chance to speak about it again when we speak about your time at the World Bank. Um, mm -hmm. But there are other questions we need to address. So I would ask you to please, sure. in, in, not as, as quickly as possible, but in a more terse manner, speak to me yeah, about yeah. the chapter on how we misunderstand inflation, because this seems like uh -huh. a very relevant question at the moment. Yes, I think uh, the, the world has been obsessed with uh, inflation uh, for the last at least uh, the five decades uh, because uh, we had uh, this uh, very bad uh, experience with uh, the inflation in the, the 70s you know following on from the oil shock and you know the, yeah so the, a lot of uh, effort uh, had gone into controlling inflation uh, since the 1980s and yeah indeed uh, we have passed uh, kind of uh, not everywhere but in most countries uh, have succeeded in bringing down the inflation uh, since then uh, although now it's uh, spiking uh, up again uh, because of uh, the war in Ukraine disruption uh, to the global supply chain due to COVID pandemic and uh, so on but uh, the unfortunate thing is that uh, this uh, view of uh, macroeconomic stability is too narrow yeah? Because that, uh, just uh, think about it, in the last few decades, we may have had uh, relatively low inflation measured by, you know, consumer price index. Yeah? That is uh, basically the prices that uh, we encounter when we go to supermarkets. Yeah? But the world has uh, seen so many macroeconomic instabilities because we had uh, so many big financial crashes. Yeah? So the, in the 80s, we had the, the, the Chilean banking crisis, you know, you had the third world uh, debt crisis, you know, that uh, you had uh, the savings and loan uh, debacle in the U.S. and, uh, you know, in the 90s, uh, Mexican peso crisis, Asian crisis, you know, Brazilian, Russian, you know, until we got that uh, to experience a 2008 uh, the global financial crisis. So, you know, you are not actually measuring uh, macroeconomic stability in the right way because uh, you are looking only a small part of it. Yeah? So that, that uh, consumer price index, yeah, it's important, but how about asset prices? Yeah? I mean, uh, in many countries, uh, house prices in relative terms uh, have gone up uh, so much, but it's uh, not included in the headline inflation rate. Yeah? We have uh, that, that, uh, had all these uh, macroeconomic instabilities are uh, coming from financial uh, crashes and so on, but it's not inflected uh, 
So it's not reflected in the, the headline inflation rate. So my the, the problem is uh, not so much that uh, you know the macroeconomic stability is that uh, unimportant, but that we are measuring it uh, in the wrong way. You know? mm. we, are, we are just uh, looking at a tiny bit of uh, this much bigger issue called the macroeconomic stability, and we get too obsessed with it, and then you know that, that we ignore other more important things. You know? So, so what's the takeaway then, if you're an individual looking at an inflation rate of six, seven, eight, nine percent, and you're starting to really, really feel it every time you fill up your, your car or you go grocery shopping, um, what is the lesson within that chapter that you would want to impute onto the people? Yeah, well, unfortunately, there isn't a huge amount that uh, individuals can do that, that when we face uh, inflation, uh, because uh, that is a uh, systemic problem. I mean, sometimes it's that, uh, you know, the oversupply of money, sometimes it's that uh, overspending by the government. This time around, it's that uh, basically the supply side issues. Uh, so as an individual that uh, we cannot that, uh, kind of uh, uh, solve uh, this problem. But yeah, as an individual, uh, one thing that uh, we have to uh, remember is that even while your grocery bill and uh, the gas bill might be going up, uh, if you have uh, debt, in general, that uh, you are benefiting uh, from inflation. It's so going that, down. <laughs> it's not all bad news. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so yeah, that's a nice that, okay. Uh, that's a nice that bow on it, actually. Yeah. Nice, nice. Um, a very provocative statement you make within the book is that mm. the washing machine changed the world more than the internet. Now, I don't know when this book yes. was written, but I think it was more than 10 years ago. I wonder whether you can yeah, still the, make this argument. Yeah, I will uh, still uh, hold on to it. There, there will be a point uh, when I say, yeah, it uh, has, hasn't. Yeah? Uh, but uh, until now, I think, uh, you know, we tend to take existing things that, uh, for granted too much. Yeah. So just that uh, go back, uh, uh, say, a century, uh, you know, you are talking about a completely different world, you know, that, that you have uh, societies where, you know, 10, 15, even higher percentage of people are in so-called domestic service, yeah? I mean, that, that they are cleaning and cooking and, that, that, you know, changing bedsheets or whatever, yeah? Uh, we we have a world where that uh, you know that very few women, even in the most that uh, that uh, affluent societies, actually can go out and work. You know, and, uh, we we have a world where the most families had uh, like five, six, yeah, if not more children. Yeah, now we live in a that uh, world where you know most of uh, the domestic services are done by machines. Yeah. I mean, the, in the affluent societies, uh, the, 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 a large proportion, if not necessarily the majority of uh, women are the, the in paid employment, you know, and that the, most families have but uh, one, two, maximum three kids, you know. So this uh, the has, uh, the, this have uh, changed the social dynamic uh, the completely. Now, I'm not saying that all of this was uh, due to washing machine and other household uh, machines. Yeah, I mean, there were also other important uh, changes about uh, uh, 
the nature work, you know, that, that uh, there have been a lot of uh, automation, so now muscle power is uh, less important than, uh, say, a century ago, so that uh, women that, uh, have become more competitive in the lots of jobs, yeah? I mean, a lot of these uh, the old traditional the sexist ideas have uh, broken down, and now a lot of women are going to universities that are getting highly qualified and so on. So I'm not uh, saying this uh, entirely because of uh, these uh, household uh, the machines, but it, uh, those have uh, played a very important role. So, you know, are we, when we are comparing uh, what the internet has done so far, I don't think that, uh, that we are talking about the same magnitude of uh, change yet, yeah? Maybe in 10 years time, maybe 20 years time, I'll say, yeah, now it has uh, completely changed uh, the society that, that uh, now I would uh, admit that the washing machine isn't <laughs> as important as the, the internet. But so far, yeah. you know, it, it has, it's uh, beginning to that, that uh, influence that uh, now the factories and uh, driving and lots of things. So. We are getting there, but so far it has uh, mostly been on the uh, kind of uh, the, uh, social entertainment uh, side of things. Yeah, mm. I mean I love the internet because that uh, you know I'm. No, very, but it's uh, much uh, more uh, than just social entertainment. I mean, how many people can do their job without a computer? No, oh, no, that's true, but that uh, you know that uh, it hasn't yet uh, reached a stage where a whole class of workers are just uh, eliminated. Yeah? yeah, yeah, it's coming, it's coming right. because <laughs> that uh, soon uh, we'll have uh, that uh, kind of yeah. artificial intelligence doing the works of lawyers and uh, accountants and mm -hmm. you know, maybe even the university professors. Yeah? So it is uh, definitely coming, but not yeah. yet. Not, not yet. yet. Yeah. I, I, want, I know it's probably an impossible task, but has have you read anything about the economic impact of, say, the washing machine or the economic impact of, say, you know, the internet? Um, has anyone done some grand uh, study no, to try and put a figure on it? Done it? I mean, I, yeah. Uh, think it'll be a fascinating uh, the balance sheet uh, to draw up, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. No, but uh, actually, uh, it is that uh, at one level a fundamentally unfair comparison because uh, the internet has been around for only say three decades, yeah. The washing machine that uh, and uh, other things that uh, other household machines have been around uh, for a century, so. At mm. one level, it's a uh, fundamentally unfair comparison. And yeah, probably if you give both uh, 100 years, I mean, uh, uh, definitely uh, the internet will uh, have done more. But uh, you know, I was uh, with that uh, chapter just trying to kind of remind people that actually we tend to that, uh, take so many things for granted and we think always uh, that, that the changes that are happening to us are the biggest and the most important and so on. But, you know, the, take a step back and the, the, you can the, get a better sense of uh, proportion. Yeah? Cool. Um, I would love to hear you speak about South Korea. There is a figure called Chung Ju Yung, who I listened to a, a yeah, podcast about yeah. his biography and and he just he had truly oh, right. maybe one of the most exceptional lives of anyone who ever lived. 
Um, and you discuss yeah. him specifically in your new book, which is The Economics of Food, um, uh, in the mm-hmm. Noodle chapter. So I'd love to hear you explain the culture of South Korea via the life of Mr. Chung Ju Yung. Yeah. Yeah, Chung Ju Yung is, uh, yeah, probably one of the greatest entrepreneurs that the humanity has uh, produced uh, ever. Yeah? I mean, he started out as a kind of small time rice merchant, you know, I mean, he was kind of uh, selling rice uh, uh, in, in the kind of uh, the provincial areas and, yeah. and then he got into construction business and built uh, one of the biggest uh, construction companies in the country at the time, I'm talking about the, the 1950s and 60s, but uh, he was a very, very ambitious man and uh, he uh, eventually wanted to compete in the best uh, of the industries. Uh, so he got into automobile industry as uh, his uh, first uh, attempt to diversify uh, away from uh, construction. And initially he ran this uh, small assembly plant in collaboration with uh, Ford, producing like 3,000 cars per year, that kind of thing, yeah. And most of uh, the parts were basically imported uh, from uh, America and other parts that uh, where Ford was at, uh, in operation. But in the 1973, uh, he made this uh, big decision to develop uh, is uh, original the model. Yeah? Now this was uh, not entirely him because uh, the, the, the South Korean government was uh, also as ambitious as uh, him uh, and wanted uh, to develop uh, an indigenous uh, automobile industry. And uh, the South Korean government said, unless that uh, you come up with your own model, we are going to uh, cancel your license. Uh, no more of this. Uh, the, the, importing foreign models, uh, assembling them and uh, the, the selling them. So the, the two forces uh, that, that really came together and yeah, uh, Hyundai the Automobile the Corporation was that, uh, uh, sorry, that came up with this that, uh, local model uh, called Pony uh, in 1975 and uh, went into production in 1976. But that uh, from the beginning, uh, it was a very ambitious uh, the company because they asked, uh, as I uh, uh, talk about uh, in my new book, uh, Edible Economics, uh, in the chapter called Noodle, they asked uh, the world famous uh, car designer called Giugiaro. Uh, uh, this Italian car designer who has designed over 100 cars for almost all the car companies in the world, you know, uh, Volkswagen Golf and, uh, um, you know, everything that that, that you have heard of. So there was already this uh, big ambition that uh, we are going to uh, be a world-class company, but in the beginning it was uh, Kind of pitiful side, you know. That in 1976, the first full year of uh, production, Hyundai produced uh, 10,000 cars, eh? and in the same year, 
Ford produced 1.9 million cars. General Motors produced 4.8 million cars. So just imagine, I mean, if I took a time machine, went back to 1976 and told people, look at this, this two-bit uh, the, the automobile company in the uh, kind of lower middle-income country called South Korea, which uh, produces uh, 10,000 cars a year, but give it that uh, just over 30 years, it will be bigger than Ford. In the less than 40 years, it will be the producing more cars than General Motors. You know, people that but uh, put me in a mental hospital. You know? <laughs> but this is what happened. You know? From 2009, Hyundai produced more cars than uh, Ford. Uh, from 2015, it produced more cars than the General Motors. You know? So the, the, this was uh, the, the ambition of uh, the kind of uh, <laughs> unimaginable scale. But uh, you know the important thing is that uh, the, this company and uh, many other South uh, South Korean companies succeeded because it uh, the kept investing, kept uh, the developing new technologies, kept training uh, the workers, and uh, the kept developing uh, the new the, the, the models and you know basically kept upgrading its uh, the, the, the technologies and the product quality constantly so there's an important lesson there I mean that you know that these days especially in the Anglo countries you know the US uh, the UK and others uh, the, there's this idea that uh, you know the financial alchemy you know, Almost, uh, or at least, that uh, financial engineering is that uh, the way to uh, make money, and indeed uh, they are making lots of money. But uh, those uh, that, uh, efforts are uh, uh, in the end that uh, uh, kind of weakening uh, the underlying economy because that uh, uh, there's nothing going back uh, uh, into those uh, uh, enterprises. Yeah? I think uh, that this that uh, uh, important. Uh, set of lessons there. So first of all, uh, you know, Mr. Chang Juyang and uh, other Koreans, you know, they uh, were very ambitious. You know, the, you go to some developing countries, you know, especially in Latin America, they are very good at the, the things that they are already good at. Yeah? So the, the, the Colombia produces uh, the, the best coffee in the world, you know, the, the Chile has uh, the, the come from nowhere to become the second uh, biggest uh, salmon exporter in the world and so on. But, you know, somehow <laughs> really? they are not... I didn't know they were that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was yeah, like yeah, uh, yeah. America, Norway, Scotland or something like that. Okay. No, 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 no. Not anymore. Yeah. So the Norway is uh, still number one, but uh, Chile is now number two, you know. Mm. So the, they, uh, these Chile countries salmon. are very good at uh, what they're already doing, but, you know, they are not ambitious. I mean, there's no ambition that we will one day, you know, beat up uh, the biggest boys, you know? And uh, that, I think, is uh, that, that an important lesson that, uh, about uh, you know, Korean economic development and is that uh, kind of, uh, as you put it, uh, the cultural attitude uh, towards these things. Uh, so that's uh, the, the first lesson. The second lesson is that, uh, that these people understood that uh, Mr. Chang and that, uh, other Koreans that, uh, who work with him, but who competed with him and everyone, that they knew that uh, you cannot get something out of nothing. Yeah? You have to uh, put in the effort, uh, you have to invest, yeah? you have to uh, develop uh, technologies, you have to constantly upgrade. Yeah? 
So the, that's another the important the, the, the lesson the, to learn the, from that experience. Uh, I mean, it is that, uh, you know, I mean, I, as I already mentioned, I mean, we have uh, the, the, some very big uh, problems, you know, but I think uh, that in this aspect of, uh, the, you know, industrialization, technological upgrading, constant uh, innovation, I'm but, uh, very uh, proud of uh, what uh, my country has achieved. And is does it still have uh, a rosy future? Do those same values still live in the culture? You mentioned earlier the rising prominence of <clears throat> South Korea and pop culture, you know, with Squid Games and with Parasite, yeah. and um, all of a sudden it's a place that people like really, really, really want to go to. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think uh, the country has. I mean, this uh, incredible uh, strengths that are still, in terms of its uh, the willingness to innovate and uh, the, you know, really the, the, to shoot uh, for the highest uh, stars. But uh, I think, uh, unfortunately, we've been uh, losing this uh, the kind of uh, ability to mobilize uh, all of uh, society's uh, the talents. Yeah. Because that uh, in the until the eighties, yeah, maybe even the early nineties, it was that uh, literally possible to be born in the poorest uh, family in the country and become, you know, the republic's uh, president, the uh, supreme court judge, uh, the top scientist. Because we at the time had that, that very flat uh, social structure, you know, the old uh, feudal. Hierarchy was uh, destroyed that uh, first that uh, that through Japanese colonialism and then the, the uh, Pacific War and uh, the the Second World uh, the, sorry the, the Korean War and uh, the land reform and so on so that and then we had uh, quite a meritocratic education system so you were able to utilize all the talents that are in the society to create that, that some incredible things, you know, that, that Mr. Chang Juyanka being a very good example, yeah? But now that, that the society is ossifying, you know, that, that's the kind of thing you are seeing in, the, you know, uh, Parasite, Squid Game, I mean, the lots of uh, the recent uh, Korean dramas, yeah? So that now that, they, that the younger generation, that they feel very frustrated because unless they come from the top, say, 10% of uh, families, they have so many obstacles uh, to uh, realizing their the, the dreams and, and the, the expanding their talents. So I think uh, we need to get that, that right uh, through a better welfare system, reform of the education system and so on. But yeah, I mean, that, that, that uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, the somewhat the ludicrous uh, ambition that the, that the, the enabled the, the people like uh, Mr. Chang and uh, other the big Korean entrepreneurs and uh, the, the, the policy makers uh, of the earlier years that uh, is uh, still there. So I live in hope. You know. mm, nice. Th there is um, a really interesting question on economic development that I wanted to ask you. Uh, you've been a mm. consultant to the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the European Investment Bank, and as well as Oxfam. So from mm. working with all of these different organizations, what is something interesting that you've learned about economic development? Mm. Yeah, I think uh, one important thing uh, to 
bear in mind when we talk about these uh, big organizations is that uh, they have this uh, big kind of uh, headlines yeah, made at, at, uh, decided by the top people but that uh, these are very large and complex organizations so actually that uh, what they are depends on the, which part you look at and which part you work with yeah? So the, the World Bank uh, the, the, you know, as a kind of uh, corporate policy might state that you know, we are going to, you know, I don't know, liberalize uh, trade all over the world, we are going to uh, privatize everything. But actually, when you work with the, the, the people who work there, who are in charge of you know, a particular country or a particular sector, particular aspects of policy, whether it's the, the social policy or trade policy, Actually, you meet that uh, very diverse people, yeah? and in that sense, that uh, my sample is biased because uh, people who don't like uh, that, what I say would wouldn't have asked me to work with them. Yeah, so it's people within those organizations that uh, who are interested in uh, listening to something different, listening to the the, the unusual the point of view that uh, I have worked with and. I have uh, had uh, the very good experiences uh, with those people, but the problem with these uh, big uh, international organizations is that they are in the end a very politicized organization. Yeah? So whatever good policy that uh, people lower down come up with, yeah, if uh, it doesn't that, that, that match uh, the top uh, corporate uh, the kind of vision, then they get uh, ignored. Yeah? So. You know that uh, people often ask me, "Oh, you have been uh, criticizing the World Bank uh, that, uh, for decades, and how can you work with them?" I say it's uh, very easy because uh, I that uh, criticize their headline policies, but actually, what I do with uh, this economy or that uh, department in the World Bank, uh, I'm I'm that, that, that very happy with because uh, these are, you know, in the end, very uh, pragmatic people. You know, they want to. You know, help this country, help the sector, help this group of people, and then we uh, try to find a way to do that uh, in the best uh, possible way. So, yes, I mean, that, uh, my overall experience that uh, with these people have been uh, good, uh, but, you know, I mean, the problem is that this is a very biased sample. Mm. Can you give an example of when the recommendation you made went against the sort of headline politics. I mean, isn't the whole idea of a world bank to be politically agnostic? Can you give us an example? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the, the, what's uh, there? I mean, yeah, for example, once I uh, work with uh, a group of uh, world bank economists uh, to kind of uh, develop uh, more kind of uh, nuanced uh, understanding of uh, deregulation. You know, this was at, uh, in the, the mid-1990s, yeah, when the World Bank uh, headline policy was, uh, you know, you deregulate uh, everything you can think of. Yeah? But uh, that, uh, there was uh, this uh, group of uh, the World Bank economists who were not happy with uh, that kind of you know, bulldozer approach and they contacted me asking me to write uh, a research uh, that, uh, paper to 
provide a more kind of, uh, if you like, uh, multi-dimensional and uh, nuanced uh, view of uh, uh, regulation. So yeah, I wrote a research at that paper saying uh, that you know, yes, I mean that, that sometimes deregulation is that uh, good. Uh, sometimes it's even necessary, but uh, you need to you know that, uh, make this uh, decision you know sector by sector, country by country, because that uh, there's no you know economic theory that says uh, the more deregulated your economy is, uh, the, the better it is. Yeah. So I was uh, trying to explain what kind of things uh, that you might uh, consider when uh, making a decision as to whether to the, the deregulate the, the particular sector, particular the industry. Yeah, so the, they, they were very happy with the report, but I don't know what kind of impact uh, it had internally. I mean, the, the, you know. yeah. <laughs> they, they must have uh, used it uh, to make their case, uh, but you know, who knows? I mean, it's a huge organization. You know, the, these were just a small group of people. Yeah. Speaking of these international banks that are supposed to be apolitical, um, mm. what's your take on foreign aid? Uh, because, you know, there is, from what I see, you know, like an obvious divide between people saying it's absolutely necessary versus it's actually a detriment to the country. You know, mm. a wild, wild, shocking statistic that Michael Yaus on episode 12 of this podcast said was that Africa imports more calories than they produce themselves. And Africa mm. is the most fertile land for agriculture in the world, even more so than the United States. So um, that's just a crazy statistic to fathom mm -mm. um what is your position given your very sort of uh eclectic and pluralistic mm -hmm. economic worldview i'd be very interested to know what you think about our foreign yeah aid. well uh, yeah once again my view is that uh, it can be very good uh, it uh, can be the, the of really bad thing yeah so the i mean let's begin the, from the beginning i mean the, at one level you know if there's more money, who can argue with it? Yeah, I mean, uh, most developing countries uh, need more money. Yeah, so that, that that's the starting point. But of course, that uh, it can be appropriated appropriated uh, by small group of people and used for the wrong things. Yeah, it can be implemented that uh, as sorry used uh, in a generally decent way, but that uh, you know you might have uh, missed uh, the design the scheme and actually that uh, they don't work. So that, you know, what comes out of it uh, really depends on the, how you use the money. Yeah? So that there are the cases where the, the foreign aid uh, did uh, some really important good things, you know, for example, that uh, in the 1950s, South Korea was uh, devastated, uh, the, you know, first uh, the, the Pacific War and then the Korean War. And yeah, I mean, the people were starving and, you know, the country was uh, not able to invest uh, that uh, more than like 5% uh, of uh, its uh, GDP. You know, it was a terrible situation. Yeah? So in that situation, you know, foreign aid uh, from the U.S. Uh, mainly, but other yeah, that uh, rich countries, 
yeah, that, uh, indeed, that uh, enabled the country to rebuild the infrastructure that uh, was uh, destroyed uh, through the Korean War. You know, fed people. You know, that uh, sent that that uh, kids to school. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you have uh, ex examples like that where foreign aid was that uh, crucial in the country's that uh, future development. Yeah. On the other hand, you have uh, the many examples where, you know, uh, foreign aid, uh, first of all, is uh, uh, kind of uh, hugely exaggerated because, uh, that, uh, first of all, a lot of money is that, uh, used uh, for uh, companies and consultants uh, from the you know, country that is uh, giving the aid. Uh, so actually, yeah, they might say, oh, we have a foreign aid budget of I don't know, 500 uh, million, but actually uh, the actual money that goes to recipient countries might be that uh, tw only 20% of that or whatever. So that's that uh, one problem. And uh, secondly, the, you know, the, there are countries where this uh, aid is uh, the appropriated by the, the corrupt uh, political elite. You know, and then the, there are all kinds of uh, the, the schemes that are introduced that haven't been really thought through, so that do not that, that benefit the country that, uh, to the extent that uh, you that, uh, expect uh, from you know, that, uh, seeing the figure. But yeah, I mean, uh, on the whole, I think uh, that uh, I would say that foreign aid that, uh, is a that, uh, good thing that, uh, for countries at very low levels of development, yeah, where, where South Korea was at, uh, in the 1950s and so on, provided that, that, that the yeah, political corruption that doesn't uh, eat it away. Yeah. Uh, at the middle income level, it becomes uh, more debatable. Then uh, you really need to the, the look at the, the particular scheme, yeah, the particular way in which uh, it's uh, used. Uh, so, then that uh, you are that uh, really uh, talking uh, about uh, a case by case approach. So yeah, I mean uh, my answer is that uh, very complicated, but uh, that's how I see it. Yeah. Well, fascinating, and um, also for those listening along at home, Hajun and I have had really really poor internet connection on this entire conversation, um, which is obviously very frustrating, but we must uh, endure. Uh, maybe some of that foreign aid can be sent Sweden's way for better fiber optic cables. <laughs> what do you think? Would that be a good allocation yeah, yeah, of resources? Yeah. Um, you should do look, that. Look, yeah. final two questions for you, Hajun. Mm -hmm. These are questions that I like to ask absolutely every guest. The first is, yeah. what is a country you're particularly bullish on? Oh, uh, gosh. Uh, Is there such a country? Uh, <laughs> not particularly, I think. Yeah. Well, I think uh, you know. It depends on what kind of time frame you are talking about. I mean, if you are talking about, uh, say, next ten years, out that uh, certainly say Vietnam. Yeah. It's been that uh, cool. doing very well, and yeah, but you know. The challenge for Vietnam will be whether they can now upgrade this economy in the same way that uh, South Korea did in the say 1970s and 80s. Yeah, I'm not sure whether they have a, a good uh, the plan to do that. Yeah, 
I mean, they run on the past uh, steam uh, for another ten years, that uh, in a good way. But in the ten years' time, their wages will be too high for the kind of things that they are exporting now. You know, coffee. You know, the the electronics assembly. So where do you go the, 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 for the next step? That I'm not sure about. Okay, interesting. Well, it's nice to see Vietnam join the list. I think that might be the first time they've had a, an answer in over 100 interviews. Um, <laughs> finally, Hajun, if you could listen to a conversation between any two people of history, dead or alive, no language barrier. So if you were to listen oh, to right. a podcast between these two people, who would it be? Uh -huh. Gosh, uh, that's an interesting question. Yeah. One history person and the one current person, the, the, so the history uh, person is uh, Alexander Hamilton, the first Treasury Secretary of the United States, uh, the guy who invented uh, the infant industry argument, which has been central to, to my vision of uh, economic development. I mean, from what I can gather from his uh, biographies and so on, I think he was uh, uh, a rather arrogant and obnoxious <laughs> character. But, you know, uh, he, he that, uh, is uh, really the first one that has uh, come up with a systematic approach to economic development. So I think I, uh, we have to uh, <laughs> we have to have him. Uh, yes, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that that maybe if he uh, comes alive and that uh, uh, turns out to be excessively obnoxious, then <laughs> I'm not sure whether I will not regret uh, my choice. But uh, you know, uh, what uh, can you do? Yeah, uh, and uh, I think uh, Hamilton's uh, uh, modern conversation partner that uh, choose uh, Sanna Marin, the, the Finnish uh, prime minister. Um, well, Hajun, I can't thank you enough for um, being so generous with your time. Um, and no, no, but, uh, uh, thank you for your patience. I mean, I haven't been the, the able to the communicate with you the, the, as quickly as I should. Uh, but I mean, the last uh, the few weeks that I have been insane with the release of the new book and i was yeah that's okay no it's cool and edible economics so i'll make sure mm. that there is a link to that in the description thank you